Hey mamas, and welcome to the Entering Motherhood podcast. If you're here for this, if you're as pumped up as I am and searching for that fire that you know is deep inside of you, then let's go. Let's uncover what it truly means to enter motherhood. You are a rock star. I believe in you. Let's doula this. Let's crank it up a notch and let's kick it into high gear together. Hello, mamas, and welcome to the Entering Motherhood podcast. Today, the topic is cesarean deliveries specifically, and uh, we are going to explore the most common reasons for this type of birth, its history, and its impact on mothers and babies. And I just wanted to point out that April is Cesarean Awareness Month, so that's why we're focusing on this in today's episode. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, cesarean delivery, also known as a cesarean or a C-section, in medical terms is a surgical procedure that is used to deliver the baby using an incision in the mother's abdomen and uterus. In some cases, it can be a life-saving intervention, but currently it is often overused and can really have some serious consequences for both mothers and babies when used in practice. So I first wanted to start off with a little bit of history on cesareans. Last month was Women's History Month, and I wanted to tie that in still. So cesarean sections have been performed for centuries, but they were usually considered more of a last resort and were often associated with high maternal and fetal mortality rates. So specifically in the United States, the first successful recorded cesarean was performed in 1794 by Dr. Jesse Bennett in Kentucky and Um, Even though this was done, it wasn't until the late 19th century that cesareans became more common and were safer due to advancements in surgical techniques, anesthesia, and uh, antiseptic practices. And so then the first cesarean section that was performed more similar to how we know it today with both the mother and the child surviving, was done in 1881 by a German gynecologist, and his name was Ferdinand Adolf Kerer. I believe I might be pronouncing that semi-accurately, but in the early 1900s, the cesarean rate in the U.S. was still only about 5%. And it did increase steadily through the 20th century due to, you know, various factors such as advanced medical technology, changes in obstetric practices, and changing social attitudes towards childbirth. A large factor to this may also be the type of incision that was being used. It was switched from a classical incision, which was that vertical incision up and down, and it had switched to the low transverse incision, which is more commonly seen now, and that that's that side-to-side horizontal incision that's very low. And this technique was shown to reduce the risks associated with cesarean. So this also in turn ended up increasing the the cesarean rate. And then in the 1970s and the 1980s, there was a dramatic increase in the cesarean rate and it reached a peak of 33% in 2009. And this increase was, you know, again, due to all these various different factors, including electronic fetal monitoring and a rise in malpractice litigation and changes in obstetric practices again. 
such as using induction and repeat cesareans. So, you know, that phrase, once a cesarean, always a cesarean. And the idea of repeat cesareans was increasing naturally the rate of cesareans in general. And then there was a slight decrease in the cesarean rate and um, it brought it down to around 31% in 2019. And although this is, you know, around about what it is now and everything, some hospitals even have cesarean rates as high as 60%. So, you know, we really need to be taking all of this into consideration and looking at the history of cesarean deliveries because cesarean delivery still remains the most common surgical procedure in the U.S. And efforts continue to be made to reduce this rate by pointing out unnecessary cesarean deliveries and really trying to promote more evidence-based practices. It's estimated that approximately 21% of births worldwide are cesareans and the lowest rates are seen in the Netherlands, Finland, and Iceland. And in the Netherlands, the cesarean rate was around 15% in 2018. And then in Finland and Iceland, it was 16.4% and 16.8% in 2019. So, you know, these historical factors have really contributed to the increased volume of cesarean deliveries that we're seeing in the United States. And again, like I just want to point out these key factors in history that really have contributed to this. So again, like changes in medical technology and obstructive practices have led to a greater ability to be able to monitor and diagnose potential complications during pregnancy and in childbirth. But as a result, we have more frequent interventions, one of those being cesarean deliveries. And so trying to prevent and manage some of these complications has been a big issue that we're trying to really tap into. And again, pointing out cultural attitudes towards childbirth has a huge factor on, you know, how we're perceiving it and how those rates are being created. So, you know, more recently in our history, the view of childbirth in general has become more medicalized and been seen as potentially dangerous. And, you know, specifically in the Western world, we're, you know, beginning to see this happened and it really emerged in the early 20th century as hospitals and obstetricians gained more influence over the childbirth procedure and and practices and what was really going on and this increased medicalized childbirth and it really led to a decline in the use of practices such as midwives and home births and so as a result of that, there has been a greater reliance on medical interventions. And, you know, that includes cesareans, inductions, epidurals, everything that comes with medicalized birth and being in a hospital setting. So, you know, this attitude, this viewpoint, these cultural occurrences are really leading to create a preference for medicalized birth in the United States. And, you know, it creates this acceptance of interventions and kind of more of a normalization of cesarean deliveries. And it just has become a routine part of childbirth. So we really need to take that into account here. And like I mentioned before, there has been an increase of fear of litigation. You know, recent decades, there has been an increase in medical malpractice litigations related to childbirth. And this has led to, you know, practices that are very defensive and approaching birth in that 
way. And so doctors may be more likely to recommend an intervention like a cesarean in order to avoid the risk of legal action. So all of these factors are are really playing into the rise of cesarean rates here in the United States. And there has also been an increased number of women who are giving birth later in life, which is, you know, perfectly fine. But this has been new to the birthing process in some accounts. And so that is leading to cesareans or, you know, there are people having underlying health conditions that may increase the risk of complications during childbirth. And these factors are again like leading to a higher rate of cesarean because they want to ensure the safety of both the mother and baby. So this this is a solution to some of these things that are occurring that we might not have all of the information about and we're saying, you know, the root of having a cesarean is safer because we know the outcomes of this. So it's really kind of, we need to question why we're doing these things and what's going on. And these are just a few examples of how historical factors have really contributed to the increased volume of cesarean deliveries in the United States. And understanding these factors can help us to inform and really promote more evidence-based practices to mothers who are, you know, in these positions of birthing babies and looking to reduce unnecessary cesarean deliveries. Hey mamas, I just wanted to take a second and stop real quick and talk about postpartum university. If you are a mama or if you are a professional serving moms, it is an amazing resource to have. And there is also now monthly memberships that you can be a part of to get training resources and materials to help moms heal in the postpartum period. And like I said, if you're a mom, there are amazing resources for you there as well to help along the way. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes for you to check that out. And with that, let's just get back to the episode. So let's jump into it now, and um, we're going to look through some of the reasons why cesareans are occurring. So according to the CDC, about one-third of all births in the United States are by cesarean delivery. And based on that data, the reasons for a cesarean delivery have been broken down into these 10 categories. So for here in the United States, the number one reason for a cesarean is failure to progress. And this is at 33.3% of cesareans are due to what they're saying is failure to progress. Number two, we're coming in at fetal distress, which is 20.8%. Three is abnormal fetal presentation, and that is at 10.7%. Four is maternal hypertension, and that is 6.3%. And don't worry, I mean, like I will probably list these top 10 things in the show notes for you, but we are going to be diving in deep on each of these specifically. So right now I'm just kind of saying them, saying the percentage of where they lie in cesarean deliveries, and then um, we're going to, you know, go into them a little bit further. So the next one is previous cesarean deliveries, and that is at 5.5%. Six is a breach presentation. That's at 3.5%. Seven is multiple gestation, you know, multiples. Um, This is 2.8%. And eight is maternal request. So this is 1.1%. And then we have other medical reasons. And, you know, I guess that should be kind of like up higher, but it's just listed as, you know, other and that is 11%. And then number 10 just says unknown or not stated. 
So like I said, we're going to, you know, dive into these a little bit more. And that unknown, not stated category is 3.9% of all cesareans. So (laughs) it's also just kind of like worth noting here that these percentages obviously can vary depending on a number of factors, you know, geographical location, maternal age, their health status, also, you know, different practices of individual hospitals and healthcare providers are going to adjust these rates for why cesareans are occurring and cesarean rates in general are going to be different because of all of these factors. So, We need to point out, though, the possibility that an unnecessary cesarean versus a truly medical necessary cesarean is occurring. And this would be, you know, an an unnecessary cesarean would be one that's performed without any medical indication or without really a compelling reason based on the mother's or the baby's health status. And in general, it's still really hard to call sometimes and be able to determine if it is truly medically necessary, but there are a few things that we can kind of take into uh, account when we're looking at cesareans being performed. Because, you know, a cesarean is a major surgical procedure that carries risks for, you know, both mother and baby. We have infection, bleeding, complications from anesthesia, you know, a longer recovery time compared to a vaginal birth. There's just so many different factors that kind of go into, you know, if you're having a cesarean versus a vaginal birth. So, cesarean delivery may be medically necessary in a few cases, but we really need to have a understanding of the risks or complications that are occurring compared to if we have a vaginal delivery. So let's break down this list of 10 reasons for a cesarean delivery here in the United States. Like I said, number one is failure to progress. And and that is 33.3% of cesareans that are occurring is labeled as this failure to progress. And it's, you know, obviously the most common reason for a cesarean section being at 33%. That's the highest one that we are seeing. And so failure to progress is classified as when a woman's cervix stops dilating or her contractions are just not strong enough to push the baby through the birth canal during labor. In this scenario, this is when a cesarean would maybe be necessary. But we really need to kind of evaluate this and break it down and see what truly classifies a labor to count as failure to progress. And you know, it's a term used to describe the situation and it's saying, you know, the labor is not progressing as expected. And the exact definition of failure to progress might, you know, vary depending on a healthcare provider or different circumstances um, of the individual birth. But generally, we are saying that this is when labor has been active for a certain length of time, usually several hours, and then we get to a point where the cervix is not dilating. Okay, so failure to progress can either be classified as a prolonged latent phase or prolonged active phase. And this is, you know, depending on when it is occurring in labor. So prolonged latent phase refers to a situation which happens in early labor, 
before, you know, you're getting to the point of active labor and it is just lasting longer than expected. And this is often because the contractions just aren't strong enough. They aren't frequent enough, or, you know, they aren't uh, effectively occurring enough to dilate the cervix. And then prolonged active phase, on the other hand, refers to a situation when the cervix has dilated to a certain point And, you know, usually this is around six centimeters if we are in active labor and then it is just stopping or it dilates very slowly despite, you know, still having strong and frequent contractions. So you're still having those contractions, but your cervix for whatever reason is just not dilating anymore. And so to have a diagnosis of failure to progress, it, you really kind of like involves a combination of different factors, you know, the cervical dilation, the fetal station, and um, the fetal station, if you don't know, is the position of where the baby's head is in relation to the mother's pelvis. And then again, like we're talking about the strength and frequency of our contractions that are occurring. So in some cases, other factors such as maternal exhaustion or fetal distress could be playing into account when we're talking about failure to progress. And it's important to note that FTP is a diagnosis that should be made carefully and only after other potential causes of slow labor progression have been ruled out. And in some cases, interventions such as labor augmentation or cesarean delivery may be recommended if failure to progress is diagnosed. But these decisions, again, should be made on a case-by-case basis and in consultation with the mother and her care provider. You know, you need to be working together and saying like, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what's occurring. And, um, you know, talk that through, like have a very in-depth conversation with what's going on because there might be something, you know, holding that mom back from allowing herself to dilate, or there might be kind of more things just kind of playing into effect here that we are are really uncovering and seeing a lot more in evidence-based practices. And we are able to kind of evaluate it differently case by case, because I believe it's about four hours that it needs to be absolutely no progress. And that's hard to tell too, because honestly, like, let's think about how we even check cervical dilation and how we are saying like it has not progressed or it has not moved. And, you know, we're also talking about the thinning out of the cervix versus the dilation of the cervix. Like, where are we at? And is it truly coming to a stopping point? Because there are so many other factors that might be occurring that we're not noticing within the mom. So this has also been kind of termed failure to wait or, you know, the provider is just kind of getting impatient and not willing to wait to see what happens. And so they deem it failure to progress and start, you know, throwing out cesarean as an alternative. And so, you know, if, if you're finding yourself in this position, you know, maybe you were even termed failure to progress. That was one of the things with my cesarean that was kind of given to me like failure to progress. And I had gotten to, you know, a certain point in my labor and had dilated to a certain point, but had never fully progressed to that 10 centimeters within a 24 hour period after my water breaking. So there was other different factors that were coming into account there, but it was sort of, hmm, like you should be progressing further along than you are right now. We're not really sure what's going on. I had an epidural, I was on Pitocin, all that cascade of interventions and and whatnot can really be coming into effect here. So this being the top reason for cesareans and, you know, it may not be truly medically necessary is huge because we are having these medical procedures be done when we don't really understand 
if it was needed or not. And to let this be the only reason, you know, if mom's doing fine, if baby's doing fine, if everything else is, you know, showing great signs of labor, we can't really just say like, hey, you're just not progressing for far enough. And so we need to have a cesarean. So that's number one. <laughs> Moving on to number two is fetal distress. And this is 20.8% of cesareans in the United States is going to be caused by fetal distress. And, you know, I think this is one of the ones that are a little bit more serious. And with the baby's heart rate coming into play, this is this is a big deal in a lot of scenarios. And, you know, there's a difference between just not being able to get a good greeting on the baby and, and seeing its heart rate and truly seeing declines in the heart rate. So fetal distress is when the baby's heart rate is abnormal and indicates that the baby might be in distress. And so cesarean is necessary to deliver the baby quickly to prevent further harm due to whatever is occurring with the baby. And so if the baby's showing signs of distress, such as an abnormal heart rate or, you know, reduced oxygen supply, then a cesarean section usually needs to be done quickly and the baby needs to be delivered. In this scenario, a cesarean delivery for these, you know, heart rate patterns that are usually detected by the electronic fetal monitoring. And, you know, this could be a sign that the baby is not getting enough oxygen. It could also be the umbilical cord is being compromised in some way. The placenta is not working properly or there's an infection. So there's a, a lot of different things that are going on here. And a cesarean is going to be necessary to get the baby out quickly because there could be brain damage involved or other very serious complications. This again is one that I feel, you know, if we're seeing true situations with fetal distress, we need to be acting accordingly. And that's when, you know, procedures such as a cesarean can be very useful and necessary. And our third is abnormal fetal presentation or position. And this is if the baby is not in optimal position for delivery. And it could be breech position, but they have breech listed down as another option. So I'm assuming this is mostly if they are in a transverse position, which is, you know, like head and feet are side to side across the body. We don't have head down. We don't have head up. It's really this like long transverse positioning of the baby that's occurring. And cesarean delivery is going to be necessary to ensure a safe delivery if a baby is truly positioned in this way. And, you know, there has been a little bit, um, loss of knowledge over the years for vaginal delivery for babies that are not in an ideal position because of the use of cesareans. And so if we're seeing anything that is abnormal in presentation and positioning, we are, you know, resorting to using cesarean as the means of delivering the baby. And, you know, so I'll, I'll bring up um, breach positioning now, which is at 3.5%. And so, you know, 3.5% isn't that high when we're talking about cesarean rates, but it can still be something that can be worked on. And we need to be considering all of the options such as external sepalic version. I don't know if I'm saying that right. ECV this is, and um, it's, you know, a medical procedure that can be performed during pregnancy to help turn the baby from a breech position. Um, and breech, if you don't know, is instead of head down position, which we would like to see uh, when birthing, it is a head up position. And the ECV really helps apply 
pressure to the mother's abdomen to manually manipulate the baby's position from the outside. So this is really kind of done, um, you know, typically in a hospital setting and they have a lot of really careful monitoring of the baby's heart and all the mother's vital signs. And it's a procedure usually done not until after 36 weeks of pregnancy and this should be, you know, when the baby's more so fully grown and has limited space to move around in the uterus. So we're hoping to turn baby, get them more in a optimal position and stay there. So um, you can you can look up ECVs and, and try to see if that's something for you. If you are having, you know, a breach presentation and you are trying to avoid a cesarean, but, you know, if the the baby's head is not in a head down position, it can be more difficult to deliver a baby vaginally. And honestly, it's just hospitals are not being taught these techniques anymore. There is a lot of effort to, you know, reteach the breach and show providers how to properly be handling situations when we are seeing baby in a breach presentation. So like I said before, that is 3.5% of cesareans are due to a breach presentation. Okay, so now we have number five, which is maternal hypertension. And this is 6.3% of cesareans can be seen as this reason. And it can be classified pretty much into four different categories here. We have chronic hypertension, which is going to be, you know, high blood pressure that was present before pregnancy or, you know, diagnosed before that 20th week of pregnancy. We have gestational hypertension, which is going to be high blood pressure that develops after 20 weeks of pregnancy, but, you know, no protein in the urine or other signs of preeclampsia. And then we have preeclampsia, which is a pregnancy complication categorized by high blood pressure, protein in the urine, and it can affect the function of the liver, kidneys, and other organs. So preeclampsia can be mild or severe and can develop very rapidly. And then the last maternal hypertension that we have here is superimposed preeclampsia. So this is a complication that can occur in pregnant women with chronic hypertension where preeclampsia develops on top of already existing hypertension. That is, again, like superimposed preeclampsia. And maternal hypertension can increase the risks of complication for both the mother and the baby, including, you know, we have preterm labor, growth restriction, placenta abruption, and then it is resulting in a cesarean delivery. So this, again, I said is at 6.3% of all cesareans being done are being record it as maternal hypertension. And the management of maternal hypertension during pregnancy really depends on the severity of the condition, the stage of pregnancy, and it could include medication or, you know, more so just like bed rest, really close monitoring. And if um, a woman has a health condition that could make vaginal delivery risky, such as high blood pressure, heart disease, or diabetes, then a cesarean may be recommended to minimize the risks to both mother and baby. So again, you know, there is still a lot of research being done here. There is still, you know, a lot that can be evaluated on a case-by-case scenario, and we need to be considering that, you know, like, just because somebody has diabetes does not mean that there is going to be a huge risk in their in their pregnancy and you know lead to needing to have a cesarean and um, like I said you know there is a lot to factor in a lot going on and we really need to be understanding where the mother's at what her preferences are and not just kind of classifying it as like oh you have this you need to have a cesarean. Or moving on to number six is going to be a previous cesarean delivery or some sort of prior 
uterine surgery. And that is 5.5%. Again, like we have been kind of told or seen like once you have a cesarean, it's always a cesarean. And women who have had, you know, different types of uterine surgeries like a cesarean or anything else involving the uterus, they are kind of just projected or classified as any subsequential pregnancies are going to be a cesarean as well. And this is where VBACs really come into play. It is possible to have a vaginal birth after a cesarean and more education needs to be brought up around this because it is still very much seen that once you have a cesarean, that is your projected outcome if you want to have any more births. And while, you know, sure, in some cases, you may need to have a repeat cesarean due to a previous cesarean delivery, it really is important to look and see like, what does the mother want? And seeing, you know, what, what, what she wants to have done there and even just allowing them to attempt a trial of labor or attempt to have a VBAC can really reduce this 5.5% down. And, and we're seeing that and we're seeing more VBACs occurring and you know, going back again to that cultural interpretation of childbirth, it's kind of seen as, oh, VBACs are seen as a higher risk and insurance companies and providers see it as less money. Maybe there's lawsuits and other risk factors involved for providers that are attending these VBACs. So again, like there is a lot that goes into that. Like I want to eventually have um, another episode and really dive in more with VBAC specifically. But this again can be something that's avoided because almost always you can, you can at least try for a vaginal birth after a cesarean. So um, that is going to reduce this factor of, of why cesareans are happening for sure. And then number seven, we have multiple births or, you know, known as like multiple gestation. And this is if a woman is pregnant with twins, triplets or more, and we are seeing this at 2.8%. So, you know, a lot of people might kind of assume like, oh, like, yeah, like cesareans are happening because there's so many twins and triplets and whatnot. But this is only 2.8% of cesareans are actually done because of twins or, or multiples. And according to a recent uh, data pool by the CDC, the percent of cesarean deliveries for multiple births was 91.7%. So even, you know, it's not necessarily a cause for cesarean when you have twins or multiples, because here we are seeing 91.7% of multiple births are resulting in cesarean, but that still opens up you know, a little bit of a percentage that are not having cesarean. So they are having vaginal births, you know, probably more so with twins. And, you know, the cesarean rate for multiple births is obviously high. 91% is high, but it's due to, you know, preterm birth, fetal distress, other factors and stuff that are going to be risks in having multiples. And, there is evidence to suggest that cesarean delivery is often used more of as a routine intervention for multiple births, even in cases where a vaginal birth may be safe and viable. They are still kind of pushing like, oh, you have twins. Oh, you have multiples. We're going to go ahead and have a cesarean. So really kind of pointing that out again and saying like, is this medically necessary and making that decision on a case-by-case scenario and really working with the mother and the healthcare provider are, you know, making a decision together and having that, you know, informed decision-making ability is, is necessary. So now we're moving on to number eight, 
This is coming in at 1.1% of cesareans seen in the United States, and that is maternal request. So again, this is only 1.1%. A lot of people might think like, oh, if you're having a cesarean, you're choosing to have it. You know, you're just walking in and electing or scheduling a cesarean. And, you know, there's no medical reason or indication, which is also, you know, I agree, like every birth is what you want it to be. And if this is your choice, then, you know, that is what you are deciding. But this is only 1.1%. So when we're saying like, oh, like cesareans are so um, unnecessary and, you know, people are just walking in and electing to schedule their cesareans, that is only 1.1% recorded as a reason of why someone is having a cesarean. So I just want to point that out and, you know, really see how significant that is of how low of a number of births are really at that maternal request. And then, you know, we're moving on to other medical reasons. That's literally what it's listed. It says other medical reasons and it's coming in at 11%. So I kind of took this and tried to figure out like what I know to be reasons for a cesarean that are not shown in this list of 10 options. And um, then I also tried to find out, you know, what percentage of cesareans are due to these types of births as well. So we have placenta occurrences and the the one that I immediately thought of, you know, that is needed for a cesarean is going to be placenta previa. And this is when the placenta is very low lying and it actually covers a part or absolutely all of the cervix. And this is going to cause, you know, a massive amount of bleeding. If you try to have a vaginal birth, it can be very dangerous. And we never want the placenta to be delivered before the baby because that is, is going to cause fetal mortality. So, you know, placenta previa is, is a very big deal and an issue. It's covering your cervix. It's really creating a unsafe environment for a vaginal delivery. And I truly feel like this is one of those cases that a cesarean delivery is necessary for, you know, both mother and baby. And that is occurring at 0.7% though. So again, like that's even less than 1% is we're seeing placenta previa occur. And another occurrence that can be happening with the placenta is placental abruption. And this is where the placenta actually detaches from the uterine wall prematurely. So obviously, you know, when we are giving birth, we birth our baby and then um, the placenta detaches and we birth the placenta as well. But when this happens prematurely and it is detached from the uterine wall, it's going to cause a lot of heavy bleeding and it can be very life-threatening for mom and baby. So this is 1.6%, um, you know, so that's, that's higher than maternal request here. We are seeing 1.6% of all cesareans are due to placental abruption, which again is a very serious life-threatening occurrence that we need cesarean delivery to occur to save mom and baby. So placental previa and placental abruption, as far as we know now, can not be prevented. These are not things that we can, you know, do anything about to prevent from occurring. And there are some steps that are being seen to help reduce the risk of these conditions and to manage them when they are noticed and seen. So, you know, there has been links to women who are um, smoking, using drugs, have high blood pressure, and um, other high risks that are being seen as placental 
uh, previa or placental abruption. So obviously like avoiding these risks factors can help reduce some of these conditions. And also obviously like if you have a history of placenta previa or placental abruption, it is putting you at a higher risk of having it again. So it's not necessarily going to be the case for every birth that you have, but being able to just keep an eye on it, if it is something that has occurred before, um, it could be more likely that it is occurring again. And um, if sometimes you might be diagnosed with placenta previa um, early in pregnancy, but the placenta does have the ability to move up and away from the cervix as your uterus grows. So if you are very early in your pregnancy and they are seeing placenta previa, know that you know there is a chance of your placenta moving away from the cervix as your uterus grows. And so that obviously is going to better your chances of having a vaginal birth and um, not needing a cesarean. And then with placental abruption, um, it can be managed depending on the severity of the condition. You know, if there's a mild case, it may be bed rest or, you know, other recommendations, but in more severe cases, it really truly requires immediate delivery of the baby. And that is most likely going to be a cesarean section. Okay. So I promise we are almost done here. I hope you are finding this as interesting and intriguing as I have, you know, really digging into all this information and really understanding all of the risks and all of the occurrences of why cesareans are happening in the United States. And so, you know, with that, like moving on, we have something called cord prolapse, and this is occurring in point. 2% of cesareans as the reason why a cesarean was necessary. And it's rare, but it is a serious complication where the, umbil the umbilical cord drops down through the cervix before the baby is coming. So this can cause the cord to be compressed and restrict blood flow to the baby. So, you know, cord comes down, baby's pushing through, and it is compressing the blood flow to the baby in the cord. And um, that is called cord prolapse. And this obviously can then compromise baby's oxygen supply and needs to be handled during, during birth if this is happening. Another one, which is super, super low, super rare, but is commonly heard and talked about is the uterine rupture. So this is actually only 0.6% of cesareans. 0.6% of cesareans are due to uterine rupture. And so it is super rare, but a very serious complication where the uterus tears during labor or delivery. So again, really severe bleeding. It can cause life-threatening occurrences, but we are only seeing 0.6% having cesareans. And, you know, usually if it is caught, seen this 0.6%, everybody is, is getting handled and, and worked on accordingly. And, um, you're where you need to be. So uterine rupture is just a super rare occurrence in general. And the number of cesareans that are caused by this, again, is super low. And we have two more that I feel, I guess, could fall under this other medical reasons category that I thought of. If you, you know, think of anything else or um, have any other information that you think could fall under the these other medical conditions um, as far as reasons for a cesarean, I would love to hear them. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, feedback on this episode in general too, and what you found interesting or, you know, shocking or um, what you might have different conflicting information with or want to know more about. But this one is going to be 2.4%. And it's when they say you have a large baby. 
also known as macrosomia. And this is when they are saying that the baby is larger than average, which, you know, is crazy to think that this is only classified as a baby that is weighing more than eight pounds and 13 ounces or 4,000 grams. They're saying it may be more difficult to vaginally deliver a baby due to the increased size of the baby and it can cause risks such as shoulder dystocia um, which is basically where the baby's shoulder gets stuck behind the mother's pelvic bone and so they're saying you know a cesarean delivery is needed based on this macrosomia or having a large baby. And it's usually also kind of estimated without any accurate fetal weight. It's all kind of estimations. They're usually kind of doing a scan later in your pregnancy. Maybe if you have had a previous cesarean and they feel like it was because the baby was too large, which was, this was another factor that went into account with my first. They had said, you know, maybe she was just too big for your body. I am only five foot tall and she was seven pounds, 15 ounces. So just under eight pounds, you know, even with this, it's saying like eight pounds, 13 ounces is quote unquote, like larger than average. But I guess, cause I am more petite in stature. Um, they had kind of termed me as, you know, having too large of a baby, but my V-back, I will say he was even bigger than she was. He was eight pounds, four ounces when he was born. And I was completely unmedicated. So that's not even like added weight from any fluids or anything that was administered to me. And, um, so I like to really argue this one. I think large baby can just be something that's more of a scare tactic and not truly um, a reason for cesarean delivery. And so, you know, when we're thinking about the risks involved, we really need to understand like what is going on here if, you know, they're encouraging you to do a growth scan later in pregnancy due to a large baby. I, I want you to just kind of like sit with that and kind of like understand that you can, you can have a large baby, you can birth a big baby and your body is capable of birthing a large baby. There just might be some more common complications that are seen in, um, shoulders getting stuck or issues causing more complications during the delivery process. But uh, as far as requiring a cesarean for this, I think this is one of the ones that we can really reevaluate. And then the the last one we're going to have listed, that's um, maternal medical conditions. And this is 3.5% of births that result in a cesarean are are going to be classified as maternal medical conditions coming into play. And again, this is like diabetes, this is kidney disease, other like increased risk complications uh, for pregnancy. And um, that is leading to cesareans being done. And again, you know, it's just really worth noting that some of these cesareans that are being performed for medical reasons may be preventable and not necessary, you know, with appropriate management being done and really, you know, added care during pregnancy and childbirth, we can avoid a lot of these cesareans that are occurring. And it might require some more practices or, you know, more education or more knowledge on, on different scenarios. But I do believe overall, this can reduce that rate of cesareans that we're seeing in the United States. And so we have the last reason why cesareans are being done in the United States. And that reason is 
just state it as, well, it's either not stated at all or it's just listed as unknown. And this is 3.9%. So of all the cesareans that are occurring, we have this almost 4% of them are occurring for unknown reasons. And you know, this might just indicate that the medical record did not specify the reason. Maybe, you know, something happened and there was just an issue that um, there was no reason being being written down or recorded. And um, maybe it just wasn't properly documented or, or coded accordingly. So we're classifying it in this unknown or not stated category. And uh, I guess there could be like a, a bunch of different various reasons, uh, just incomplete documentation. Um, maybe it just you know, had some sort of errors done with the file or maybe they're missing the medical records completely. Again, this is at almost 4% of cesareans being done is, is classified as this. And maybe this is where, you know, you hear the stories of, oh, it's just convenient for the provider or, you know, they're just trying to accommodate the provider's schedule. Um, let's just, you know, have you come in and, and have this cesarean done. And so, I don't know what, like, I mean, obviously you're not classifying that as failure to progress. Like we, we have to list that as something. So maybe, maybe that's where this, um, idea of providers just scheduling it is coming from because there is an unknown or not stated category within here. Um, it could also just be, you know, inductions and that cascade of interventions and other things that are occurring that are really just kind of leaving the provider like we're not really sure exactly what happened. We can't pinpoint it as one of these other 10 occurrences. So we're we're placing it in an unknown or not stated category until, you know, or maybe it's something that's seen, but it hasn't been often enough to be classified as something specifically that we're seeing, but it does cause a cesarean to occur. There could be other things, you know, involved with just like um, false positive readings or like an overdiagnosis. Maybe they started to see things happening and they jumped to a cesarean and then once more test results came back or other occurrences happened, they realized that um, it wasn't as necessary as needed. So they're classifying it in this unknown or um, not stated category. But either way, it's, it's really important to note that every situation is unique and decisions about the option for delivery should be based on careful evaluation of an individual's risks and benefits. And we can try to follow more evidence-based guidelines and practices in making these decisions and, you know, really creating more of an informed decision-making process between mothers and providers. So the provider should be engaging in that shared decision-making, that informed decision-making procedure with their patients to consider, you know, all of the factors and, you know, all the risks, all the benefits and everything such as, you know, even maternal preferences and taking that into account. If there is a mother and she is saying like, she does not want a cesarean, that needs to be really emphasized when, when making some of these decisions and, and really kind of reevaluating all of the options that are possible in, in every situation. Efforts need to be made to promote vaginal birth and minimize unnecessary interventions that we're seeing. I mean, how could it be like such low cesarean rates before and now that we have more medicalized birth settings that we are seeing cesarean rates increase? So just kind of like taking all that into consideration and um, really evaluating it and seeing 
what cesareans are useful for and when they might be unnecessary. In general, just the cesarean delivery has a big impact on our maternal and fetal health. And we need to include risks and benefits of the procedure and um, all the potential long-term consequences that are going to be occurring for you know, mom and baby and the role that the providers really play into this and the, the practices and the decisions to perform a cesarean are, are really kind of influencing other providers and, um, preferences moving forward and future generations are, are really kind of intertwining these occurrences as well. Like we can adjust the rate of cesareans and we can provide more training and have different cultures surrounding birth and the birthing environment. We really need to emphasize the importance of informed decision-making and shared decision-making within cesarean deliveries, including the need for a more comprehensive and accurate interpretation and, um, providing information about these risks and benefits during the procedure. You know, first time moms, just moms in general, anybody that is in this situation and they're being told, oh yeah, a cesarean is necessary. You aren't naturally informed about all of these decisions. You don't have a piece of paper there giving you, you know, all these outlined scenarios that when you're approached with, you know, oh, you know, failure to progress, like this is where we're at. You don't have the knowledge um, in these settings to really be able to evaluate what is occurring. And I hope this episode helps you a little bit really be able to determine like maybe you've had a cesarean and you can help um, interpret what had occurred. Um, A great way of doing this too is you can request the up report from your delivery and get that and see, you know, medically like what they are classifying your, your birth with and everything. And you can, you can get that information, but why that's not just automatically given to us and why it's kind of classified as, you know, medical information or something that's excluded from our care is I think something that we need to be a little bit more open about and a little bit more transparent about when it comes to the medical procedures that are happening and really allowing the patient to be part of the practices that are being done and and being informed in all of the decision-making properly. This can really potentially reduce the cesarean rates and having more evidence-based practices and policies and promoting vaginal birth after cesarean VBACs can really play into account. Like we were saying that 5.5% of births are due to, you know, already having a cesarean before. So that in itself can drop down drastically, um, including, you know, more information on all of the inductions that are are happening and having more midwifery care led models come into play can can adjust cesarean deliveries really just experiences from individuals who have had cesareans um, really explaining all the emotional and psychological impact from the procedure and allowing others to, to see that having, you know, individual support and advocacy in the birthing community for cesareans, VBACs, everything that come with that, it can, it can play a huge part in, in what we're seeing as far as cesareans. And again, that decision-making and, and shared decision-making within the, the patients and the providers really having a whole comprehensive, informed information 
and and relaying that like every step of the way, like throughout pregnancy, like what's happening. Um, you know, a lot of the times we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what questions to ask and we don't know um, what we need to know. And so for the provider to really take that role on and take more ownership of the situation and be able to relay that to their patient, I think can make a, a big difference. So this was a lot. <laughs> I'm glad if you are still here that you stuck around for it. And like I said, I hope you found it as informative and helpful as, as I have in really, um, compiling all this information and breaking it into, um, an easy to consume, uh, podcast for you. So thanks for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed it and, uh, let me know what you thought. Um, reach out to me, um, let me know what else, you know, you're doing or you're promoting or you're thinking about, or your experience, um, with cesarean, because it is a cesarean awareness month. So I am glad to be here. I'm glad to be doing this. And I am always intrigued and continuously um, seeking more knowledge on motherhood and parenting and just what this process entails. So thank you for being here today. So see you later, mamas. Thank you, mamas, so much for listening. Remember, you are a rock star. I believe in you. Let's doula this. Let's crank it up a notch and let's kick it into high gear together. Hit that subscribe button. Share this episode with a friend. Message me, email me, call me, beat me. You know how to reach me. We're doing this, mamas. I am so excited to catch you here next week. This is your one-stop go-to place for helping you find the resources you need to make the best choices for you and your family during pregnancy, birth, and most importantly, postpartum. See you later, mamas.